You're listening to The Movement, a Holy Family School of Faith podcast. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, Welcome to week three. Uh, We are going to start going through a couple of actual proofs for God's existence. Um, We're actually going to talk about the two basic kinds of proofs. So there's two kind of general categories. So that's the first thing I want you to know. And then secondly, we're going to go through two of them. Um, And we'll do two more. And if we have time, we'll even talk about one of the stronger arguments for why not to believe in God. So, um, fun fact about learning. Um, They've done some research on memorization and actually committing things to memory. They found that uh, the person, the human mind, has to encounter the, the topic at least three different times for it to go from short-term to long-term memory. has to happen in five minutes, in 24 hours, and seven days. If you encounter, if you want to learn something, you have to at least encounter it in five minutes after you learned it, 24 hours after, and seven days later, at least that much. As a teacher, generally, they just, I remember uh, a veteran teacher told me, if you're gonna expect a student to remember anything, they better manipulate that concept at least five times. At least five times. This stuff, if you're looking at it and you're like, I hardly remember the words of this stuff, that's okay. That's normal. That's normal. Putting things and getting this into our vocabulary takes, it takes practice. And that's why, that's why we're doing it. So who's got, who thinks they've got a good guess as to how someone might respond, how we might respond to this objection that religion is the opium for the masses. It keeps us dull. Yeah. I think I yeah. Shoot. I, I said if it's... If it's something we invented, yeah. make ourselves feel good, you know, then why wouldn't we have invented something that would be a lot easier on ourselves? That's a, that's a fantastic response for anyone that's saying this was just something that we made up. That's, that's, a, that's a good one, right? If we made this up, why not make something up that was easier? Why not make up an easier religion? In other words, one in which I could do anything I wanted. It's a pretty funny way of, you know, the, the accusation is that we're drugging ourselves to make us feel better. Well, if we really wanted to make ourselves feel better, why not invent a God that would just let us indulge every single one of our impulses? Does anyone have a different one? Yeah. Okay, so that, that, that's, a, that's a creative one, right? We didn't discuss that one. But yeah, you might say that. Like, if, if we were inventing this, why wouldn't we invent something that answered to more people that way? That's good. Anyone got a different one? Uh, God doesn't alter or limit our freedom as a drug does. Yeah, there it is. That's, that's kind of more along the lines of where we were chasing last time. I'll put it on the board, and then let's talk about it. Um, God doesn't limit um, or dull our freedom like a drug does. He makes us more free. God doesn't limit or dull our freedom like a drug does. He makes us more free. So last session we spent um it was all about figuring out what do we mean by god right and what do we not mean by god and we said that god was this he was capable of coming close to humanity of interacting with humanity and not oppressing humanity and the image we used and remember the biblical image we used for where we saw that the the burning bush right so god can come close to humanity he can be in it, actually, directly, and he, can, he doesn't consume it like the way fire would the burning bush. And the other character that we saw that did that is Mary, right? That when God comes close to Mary, she doesn't become less free. She becomes more free. But the person that makes the objection, religion is a drug, it's what keeps you dull, has precisely the opposite understanding of religion and who God is. He's not something that oppresses, he's something that makes you free. Okay? 
that's that's heavy stuff. I put that on there explicitly because I wanted to make sure we were coming back to that. Um, little known fact, another t re trick I realized, I never realized you could do this, especially with math. When I had to take the GRE um, right after college, there's this huge math section on it, right? And I had to act, and I had one of those GRE books, and I, f I did the math section, and I did horribly on it in the practice book. So I just, and I, but I didn't have more questions. So actually, I, did, I just went back and I re-practiced the exact same questions, even though I had the, the exact right answer. I'd already corrected it. Turns out that that's actually a fantastic way to learn, right? Going over, if you ever have to take the GRE, you can retake the math. But the reason I do that here is because the same reason. If there's a question that you heard and you were like, ah, I don't know what that was, go back and study it again. Tr do this same drill in a week. See if you can do it. And eventually, it's, it'll, start, it'll start sticking that way. Second question is, I don't believe in God because he's like a fairy tale. There's about as much evidence for God as there is the tooth fairy or Santa Claus. How would you answer what this phrase doesn't take into account is what? What was an answer you guys had for that one? Yeah? That God can't be measured um, because he's outside of the universe. Yeah, there you go. God, by definition, can't be measured because he's outside the universe. What do you mean by measured? Great question. So this person is saying, um, look at that objection, the way I phrased it. There is about as much, and this is the key word, scientific proof for God as there is for Santa Claus. Um, science, scientific proof, always comes down to measuring or sensing something, either in a test tube or in a microscope or with a thermometer or your observation, right? So the person who's saying this, I want, they're basically saying, I want scientific proof for God. The problem with that is God is not something that's measurable. You're not going to be able to do that. There's probably a couple other ways you could have finished that sentence. Um, starts with an R. Reductionism. It's reductionism. And what's this a reductionism of? What are they reducing? Human limits God to human limitations and human thought limitations. There you go. They're limiting God to, to, to fit in human parameters, right? What else are they limiting? What else are they reducing from that first week? Experimentation, observation, that was one of the categories. There is, see if we can remember the other ones, right? Observation. Logic. And one more. Testimony. Testimony. What were these, the three, what, what were these things? Three ways of? We come to know things. Three ways we come to know things, yeah. This is how we know. Big fancy word for that. Epistemology, yeah. So this phrase is a reductionism. It's implicit in here. They might not even have these voc vocab words, right? But they're reducing all of human knowledge down to observation, to scientific observation. And that's just, that's just not good common sense. You know, if you just had the things that you could prove obser observationally, you're going to limit a lot of your knowledge in a pretty significant way. Okay, there's our review for tonight. Yeah, Wayne. Sebastian, you know, the, the thing I remember like, talking about this is that, 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 that they, that they only, people only believe what they can prove scientifically. Uh -huh. You know, and you counter that with saying, well, what proof do you have that the statement, the only thing you can believe is what you prove scientifically. Uh, I mean, how did you prove that statement? That's a fantastic response to that, Wayne. Yeah. Because it's, it's pointing to the fact that the, the philosophy of only science can be trusted is already not in the realm of science. You're already using something else. You're being, they're being lovingly, they're being inconsistent. Correct. Right? Yeah. Fantastic answer. Good. Today, we're going to open up in prayer, and we're going to talk about these proofs for God's existence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, 
Good and gracious God, you leave traces of yourself everywhere in creation for the mind that wants to seek you and for the heart that thirsts for you. We ask you to anoint our time together as we seek to grow in that knowledge and love. And we entrust this to Our Lady as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of Peace, Mary, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, um, first things first then. Let's look at, um, let's talk about these two different kinds of proofs. And we should probably talk about just the word proof in the first place. When I say proof for God's existence, I am not talking, it should be obvious at this point, I'm not talking about a scientific proof for this. I'm talking about, um, specifically, ways of reasoning, ways of using logic to arrive at the conclusion that there is a God. In other words, showing that belief in God is reasonable. Showing that belief in God is reasonable. This is what we mean by a proof of God's existence. So, um, from the outset, I would want to, and if you've had any encounters with these things before, um, these things are not necessarily going to be ironclad, foolproof, end-of-story conversations with people. If, if we approach them as such, we're going to be sorely, heartily disappointed. Um, one of my good friends, his name is, we'll talk about him a lot today, his name is John Mark Miravalli. He lives out in Maryland now. He works at a seminary teaching philosophy and theology. Um, I used to have him come to my apologetics class first thing in the semester to the high schoolers. And I had him, and he always gave the same talk. He said, why do I do apologetics? Why do I learn this stuff? He said, and the first thing he said is, I have never, never converted anyone with any of these arguments. Never. The reason I do this, he gave three reasons. One, because it's an honor to speak on God's behalf. Secondly, because it gives believers, it gives believers a sense that their, their faith is on something sturdy. And thirdly, to take away the ridiculous notion that Christians are foolish. That's why we use these proofs. That's why we use these proofs. Hopefully, the person that we're dialoguing with, they might, they might not walk away with a certainty that God exists, but at least they'll walk away with that Christian. They're not dumb. Like, they actually had reasons for why they did things. And if they can walk away like that, that's a win. That's a win. Now, there are lots of proofs for God's existence. Um, there's a book that I actually have put in here at the end, if you're interested in it, called The Handbook of Catholic Apologetics. It's by two guys. One, his name's Professor Peter Kraft. He's on the very back page if you want to see those. Um, very, very back page. Um, the Handbook of Catholic Apologetics by Kraft and Ticelli. He gives you 20 20 different proofs for God's existence. So if you want extended reading, you should definitely check that book out. It's, it's a fantastic resource. And it's not just proofs for God's existence. It's all over the map for, for things of apologetics. It's a, it's a really great resource. Um, but that said, we are not gonna, I'm not going to talk about 20. That would be a little bit overwhelming. There are two basic categories for proofs for God's existence. There are proofs that start with data from the created world. They start with data from the created world and reason from the created world back to God. They are not, so they, they start with the created world and start reasoning their way back to God. These are called cosmological arguments for God's existence cosmological, because they start from the cosmos, they start from the outside world. They are not scientific in the strictest sense. They're, they're logic. But, but here's the thing about them. They're going to use some scientific data as some of their launching points. 
The other kind of argument, the other kind of argument for God's existence, and there's many, come from, they take their data not from outside the world, the outside world, but from the inside of the human person. You could call these the psychological arguments for God's existence. And we'll see two of those next week. And they move very differently. They're like, all of these arguments, I think of them like tools. Um, they're kind of like back scratchers. Each one scratches a slightly different place. It's the job of the, pers- of, of the Christian to say, who am I speaking to? And which argument is actually going to be the most useful? For someone that's very uh, scientifically minded, the cosmological arguments, arguments might be the better place to start. But for someone who is very deep and intuitive in, in what it means to be human, maybe the other may be the, the better place to go. But just to have these categories is helpful. Tonight we're going to talk about two cosmological ones. Okay, So let's, let's get going. We're going to talk about the argument from contingency and the argument from design. The argument from contingency and the argument from design. We're going to do contingency first. Um, the argument, the word contingent, contingency, refers to something that's dependent on something else. Something that's dependent on something else. And the way that it starts is like this. When we look at the universe, we notice that some features of some things are absolutely necessary for those things. And some features are not necessary for those things. That sounds weird, so let's give it some examples. Um, A triangle. A triangle has some features that it absolutely needs if it's going to be a triangle. It's got to have three sides. It's got to have three angles, and those angles better add up to 180 degrees. Those are essential, we'll call those essential features of a triangle. But there's other features of triangles that can vary to any degree. The size of the triangle, for example, could be big or small. could be equilateral, if you remember your geometry, right? It could be um, an isosceles triangle or whatever, all the different words for that. It could be a blue triangle. Could be a red triangle. Could be made out of ink. Could be made out of a dry erase marker. Could be made out of, you could take tables and make a triangle. The point is, those features are not required for the triangle. So we've got two kinds of features. Essential features and non-essential features. We've got two kinds of features class. The first one are? Essential features, and the second one is non-essential features. Good. All right, so there's their first little piece of information. One detail about um, these essential features. If you were to ask, why does a triangle have three sides? If a friend of yours or a child were to ask, why does a triangle have three sides? your answer would probably be because that's what a triangle is, right? If my son asked me, hey, Dad, why do triangles have three sides? Because that's the definition of what we mean by triangle. But if he asks me instead, hey, Dad, that triangle over there, why is it blue? Then I move in a very different way, right? I have to respond with a cause for why that triangle was blue. This is just to get another detail of these essential and non-essential essential features, right? When you ask about an essential feature of why it is the way it is, it's because that's the way it is. But if you ask about a non-essential feature, you have to find a cause for it, okay? First kind of feature is a? Essential. Essential feature. And the second kind of feature is a? Non-essential feature. Non-essential features need causes. Non-essential features need, class? Causes. Okay. We're just building this up. Now, when we look around the universe, we find any number of things. We find a lot of things, and they have a lot of different features. 
I compiled a short list. Um, yeah. Cars, cows, clouds, caribou, California, constellations, and my friend Carl, right? Are all things in this universe. They all have different features. And they have features that make them what they are, right? And they have other features that can change. Caribou can be big or little. Caribou can live in uh, Canada. They could live in Wisconsin, for that matter, I guess. Um, Carl, my friend Carl, he can have long hair or short hair, right? That's a non-essential feature of Carl. But, but, what we find very interesting is that none of these things possess existence as an essential feature. That's coming straight from your italics at the bottom of page two. We also notice that in every case, everything in this universe, their existence is a non-essential feature of their, of their thing. That's kind of a funny phrase. What do we mean by that? Well, it means that caribou, coral, constellations, everything that's on that list, there was a time where it didn't exist. And there will be a time in the future where it won't exist again, right? Carl's got a lifespan, so is the caribou, and so does my car, unfortunately, right? Um, all of these things do have existence, but the existence is not essential to what they are. And if they were, if, how do we know that? Because if they did possess existence as an essential feature, they would have always existed. That sounds funny, but we can make it simpler. If we look at my friend Carl and we say, hey, where did Carl come from? Remember, with non-essential features, you always have to have a cause. So you ask, where'd Carl come from? And you say, oh, Carl came from his parents. Ah, but there's the problem again. Do Carl's parents exi possess existence as an essential feature? No. So I get to ask again, where'd Carl's parents come from? And again, you say, well, each one of them had two different parents. And you see what happens here. I have to keep asking questions about existence. I have to keep asking questions about existence. Now, this is what's so interesting, right? Everything in the universe is like that. Everything in the universe does not possess existence as an essential feature, which means that logically there must be something outside of the universe that has to exist, that is the source of existence, and that thing we call God. See how we work that? It takes, it takes a little bit of groundwork, that, that one's, but if, if I get my existence, here's a, a picture for you. I actually forgot my magnets. Um, but let's pretend, um, let's pretend this is our ceiling, okay? And let's say we've got a nail, just a normal nail. That nail is hanging right here from the ceiling. Now it's, and then that nail has another nail hanging from it that's magnetized, right? And this nail has another one hanging from it. And this one has another nail hanging from it. And on and on and on, all these nails are all magnetized. Now you could look at these nails and say, you know, none of these nails are magnetic normally, right? They do not possess magnetism as a essential feature which means there has to be a cause. So what do you do? Let's pretend like we're in this room and we're looking at this really amazing chain of nails, right? And we get all the way up to the ceiling to where we can't see anything beyond it. What is it reasonable to assume is on the other side outside of this room? A magnet. We may not see it. We can't smell it. We can't sense it but we can reasonably deduce there better be a source of that magnetism. 
because none of those nails have the magnetism as an essential feature. That's exactly the same thing that we do with God. We look at the universe. This room, in this case, is the universe. We look at everything in the universe, and we see that everything gets its existence from something else. But there, there's something that that existence has to be from somewhere, and it can't be anything inside this universe. There's got to be something outside. I want you to check for understanding. In that, I want you to practice. Summarize what you just understood of what I said about the argument from contingency. Who heard a good, who heard a good summary of it? You get to brag on your neighbor. Who heard a good summary or something they liked? Molly? Yeah? Annette? Um, everything in this world is non-essential, so there has to be something that exists outside of this world that is essential. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I would add one thing. The existence of everything in this universe is non-essential. By the way, th this, is how, this is how you get sharper at this stuff. You try to summarize it. The summary is, kind of is tricky, and you get to sharpen it with, with what you hear. <coughs> or in my case, you teach classes with it, and the students pick it apart, and you're like, I've got to go back and ask John Mark how we explain this. Yeah. That's, actually, that's, how, that's how I learn. And it's the, only, it's the only way I know how to learn this stuff. Who else heard a good example? Had tweaked it? Why I tweaked it? Would you say your answer the way you had it again? Everything in this world is non-essential. So there has to be something that exists outside of this world that is essential. Everything outside, inside this world is non-essential. And what I changed of it was the existence of everything in this universe is non-essential. Right? The existence. Because this is fundamentally talking about existence. In the analogy with the, the magnet and the nails, right? We're the nails, and existence is the magnetism that's flowing through it. And nothing has to have, nothing has to exist in this universe, but it does. So where did that come from? What makes this, um, well, you tell me, what's tricky about this? You guys are hearing this maybe for the first time, maybe you've heard some of these things before. What's tricky about this? What makes you assume that it's God? That is a great objection. You're right. And actually, that detail is very important for you to be aware of. We, by this proof, has only proved that there's something that's not physical. In other words, you're not an atheist anymore. But you're not a Christian if you believe this. You see what I mean? Some, Peter Crave puts it this way. These proofs of God only prove very thin slices of what we mean by God. When, you know, when we say God, when, we, when you go to church and Father talks about God, it's just assumed we're talking about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the God that sent His Son that became incarnate in the Virgin Mary who became a human, all these details and this proof does not prove all of that. The only thing it proves is that there's something outside the universe which has to exist. That's the cause of everything else. That's the only thing that we've proved. Does that make sense? Yes, but how do we know what it is? We don't. We don't. But you can only call it, I mean, if you're going to say it, we're going to say it's the source of all existence. That's all you could say. But, but, that sounds an awfully like what part of what we mean. We said that God was existence itself. We said God was the sheer act of to be. I am who am, right? Well, this is fascinating because if you know your Bible and you know the name that God gave to himself, and then you're sitting and thinking about this stuff with contingency, you're like, huh, that's kind of cool, <laughs> It's like the two things match. We're saying he is existence, and God says, I'm the act of to be. Yeah. Seems about right to me. 
just to me, though. You know what I mean? Why else is this tricky? Here reasons. Go ahead. I don't know. This is just when I was a child. I remember asking my parents where you had this wake up in the middle of the night. I'm like, and I started thinking about where did God come from? Ooh, good. So I don't know if that's where we're going to back up even one more. That is where we're going to go next. Um, Because what I'm actually going to do now is with your tables, I want you to brainstorm possible objections to this argument. You can't look, don't look forward in the next pages. In the second box, maybe some of you have, pretend like you never, pretend like you didn't. It, at your tables, I want you to brainstorm. And before I do this, I'm going to give you, I want to think 20 seconds of just thinking to yourself. If you had to think of an objection to this, to this argument, what would it be? 20 seconds, you're just thinking right now. On your mark, set, go. Tell me, let's, let's bring this to a large group thing. What objections did you come up with? Let's see if we can make a list. Let's see what we can get. The first one was, what caused God? The thought, yeah, the thought process even beyond. Yeah. Why can't you just say something caused God? A little, and that's a question that little kids can ask very, very quickly, right? Um, I've actually heard atheists say, even a five-year-old can disprove God's existence when he asks, what caused God? He was pretty snarky when he was saying it. Um, there's actually a very, very simple answer to that question. Before I answer it, what, what are some other objections you came up with? Yeah? Well, one thing I've heard once where you say, you know, there's cause and effects to everything, so everything, you know, as it, it occurs, it just kind of creates a chain reaction to things, and that's really all you see in existence. Okay. You know, it's just, it's just things happening. So it's not as if it's being something started it. So maybe this is just an infinite chain of cause and effect? Mm-hmm. What if cause and effect just goes on forever? Okay. Great question. What else? What kind of goes along with that is like a cycle, like rain. Yeah, that is very. It sounds pretty similar to this, right? Maybe just maybe it's just part of this, the nature of things to do this. You know, it's got a different one. Which it seems to me that they aren't really um, they aren't really defined arguments. They're just more open-ended probabilities. Does that make sense? What do you mean? Um, the possibilities, the, the exploring the different possibilities, but not really a defined argument. Just a, just uh, a I'm, process. I'm not sure I'm understanding. Are you saying that the that God is just a thought process, no, or are you when, when they are asking like an objection? So, and not a quantifiable objection. Of course. So, well, all these things, we're, we're squarely, we're doing heavy lifting with logic, mm-hmm. which is not going to be material, mm-hmm. right? These are very different. This is not like the scientific thing, right? That, but you can, and by the way, if you are on school boards in Catholic schools, you need to press them for why we're not teaching logic in schools. We need it. We need it. We need it. We need it. It is unfair that we're allowing people to graduate without an understanding of logic, because a lot of this stuff, I mean, it directly ties to it. Small, small tirade, um, but imp- an important one. The, let's, let's talk about this. Um, let's do the second one first. What if this cause and effect goes on forever? Well, let's pretend we're scientists for a moment. And let's say we're asking the question, man, how do fish breathe underwater? And someone just walks up to you and says, well, you know, there's a lot of fish that breathe underwater. There's a lot of them. They've gone on for a long time. If you're a scientist, what do you think of that response? Doesn't answer the question. Right? That's not a fair, that's, that may be true. There may be a lot of fish in the sea that breathe underwater. But you're actually just thrown in the towel. It's kind of like this. Imagine, 
I mean, episode after episode after episode of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, just when things get interesting, right? And, and Watson's always like, What's, how is this happening, Sherlock? And he goes, elementary, my dear Wat- Watson, right? But imagine this one time, this one time where things are really interesting. Watson comes up to Sherlock and says, what happened? He goes, oh, it's just the way things are. <laughs> if you're Watson, what do you start getting suspicious of at that point? Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he's guilty or he's hiding from something. Important because scientifically, a scientist would never accept this. So why should we accept it? Because still, when you look at the universe, nothing in the universe possesses existence. Nothing had to exist, but it does. So where does it come from? So someone that says, well, let's just say it goes on forever. You're doing, at the one moment where it's most critical and most interesting, I might add, to keep pressing further, we want to throw in the towel? Really? I don't know. I don't know if that's honest intellectually. You see what I mean? Well, let's take the five-year-old one. What caused God? Um, turn, turn your page over. I included several objections. We don't have to go through all of them today, but the first one was, admittedly, because it's the most common, what caused God? The person who asks this often has one or both of the following misunderstandings. The first is that they mistakenly think that the argument of contingency says all things have causes. That is not what the argument says. We are not saying all things have causes. There's a lot of atheists that do this. They say, everything has causes, right? Well, what caused God, Mr. D'Amico? Actually, I didn't say everything had causes. I said only what kind of features had causes? Non-essential features had causes. Essential features don't need causes because they, are their, they explain themselves. The person that asks this often has never actually studied the proofs for God's existence at all. Or if they have, they misunderstood them. That's, that's one important aspect of it. The argument does not say all things have causes. Only things that don't explain themselves need causes. Which brings us to the triangle again. Remember what happened when my son, uh, my four-year-old says, Hey, Daddy, why do triangles have three sides? What's the answer? That's, That's the definition of a triangle, son. He clearly hasn't understood what triangle means. Well, when someone asks... What caused God, I can honestly say, I'm not sure you and I are understanding what we mean by God. Because what I mean by God is that which possesses existence as his essence. That which possesses existence as his essence. It's his essential feature. That which possesses existence as its essence In other words, that's what we mean by God. If you get some really, really feisty people, they'll say, oh, but you're just, you're just pulling a fast one on me there because you're making God, you're defining him as the one thing that is. No, I didn't do that. I reasoned that there must be something like that. I didn't, I didn't prove he, I didn't assume he existed and then made you like back into it again. That's called begging the question. If you're in a court of law, you get thrown out for that one, right? What I did is I looked at the material universe, I looked at all the nails, I went right up to the ceiling and I said, there's gotta be a source of this existence that possesses existence by itself and no one gave it to him. That's what I mean by God. Father Barron, Bishop Barron, is really big on that one. If you listen to any of his podcasts about dialoguing with atheism, that's one of the first things he throws out because in all of his work on the Internet, he finds that one comes up a lot, a lot. And it's a real pity, it's a real shame that, um, that young people can be, 
can be taken in by that. But it makes sense if we're not being taught the proofs for God's existence. Like if you don't know what Aquinas actually said, then of course you'd buy that one. And it seems perfectly logical. Well, what caused God? And why would I, why would I do that anyway? Do you guys have any questions about this one? Yeah, John. You know, in the schools, is that people learn what to believe, but they don't really understand why they believe it or understand how to defend it. So once they go off to college, yes, and they hit all those professors that bombard them with all this logic, yes. they're like, "God, that makes so much sense. I don't have an answer for you." I, That's precisely why I'm I saying. I feel kind of dumb here right. by clinging to what I was taught as a child. Right. And then they just kind of let go of it. That's exactly what happens. That's so in, in many cases, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That which is the ground of existence possesses existence, existence as its essence. God. But who, who made that up? Good. We reasoned that it had to exist. Why? Because nothing existence, none of us possess existence as an essential feature. But there has to be at least one thing that does. But how do you know it's God? We know that it's by God, it's, that's the same thing. That's how we're defining God, the source of all existence. It's the definition that we reasoned to. In a question with we, I mean, who is this we? We, this room. Like, yeah, just this room in this sense. Like, think of it this way. If, let's pretend you'd never heard the word God ever before in your life. Ever, ever. And we said, look, things exist. Things don't have to exist. If we trace that all the way up through the universe, there's got to be one thing that has to exist. That's what, but that's part of, that is part of what the Christian means by God, too. But here, this is all we're saying God is. In this argument, we are saying God is not something in the universe that gave existence to the whole universe. He can't be in the universe because we already said everything in the universe was like these nails that didn't have to exist. So he's got to be outside the universe. He's outside the room. And he gave existence to the whole universe. Does that make sense? It does, because I believe in God, but I'm just trying to be the people that don't yeah. believe in God. How do you um, sell that argument? Logic. Because all I'm doing right now, all I'm doing, I'm not, for, for the moment, we're in Ascension Catholic Church, but I'm taking my Catholic hat off. Because I've got to find something we can talk about with Mr. Atheist, even though he's not Catholic. The, what we're saying is you don't have to be Catholic to believe in God, to believe in God. All you have to do is to think. That won't make you Christian, but it'll at least open you up to a conversation of, wow, there's a lot of different versions of God out there amongst humans. I wonder which one is the right one. And now you're, but now you're not an atheist anymore, right? Yeah. Something... I misunderstood, though, about God. He's not in the universe. Correct. He's ever-present. Mm -hmm. It's one of his features that mm -hmm. he's ever-present. Yeah. And all-knowing. So ever-present means he is everywhere, ever-present. Now that's interesting. This is one of his features. Um, he's omni there's three he's omnipresent, omniscient, omniscient, and omnipotent. Yeah, there's three. Yeah. All-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. Good. So, but present, the way God is present, is not present the same way you and I are present. Right? There's, when we like say. Supreme being, not, not, think, and not tangible? This is how I think of it. God is holding everything in existence. In that way, he's present to all of it. But he's not, you can't touch God the way that we're present. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? This is, all of these questions, very good questions, by the way. 
really important questions. They're getting at how strange the idea of God is. It is a weird idea. Yeah. If you think you've grasped God, you haven't grasped God. If you think you've got the perfect analogy, there's more that we, that we can't say about God than that which we can when you're thinking like this. And what's hard with people about this is they're not used to thinking in pure logic because I'm taking you all the way up the ladder, all the way up the ladder without bringing religion into it once. But people don't, we don't live at this altitude of thought usually. And it's weird. And, you, and people can accuse me of saying, you know, you're just imposing your religion on me. No, no, no. Like we're doing this with pens and paper. And if you can come up with an objection, let's talk about it. But the ones we've come up with are clearly ones that show that we're not understanding what the argument says. Molly, were you about to say something? So if you were to use this logic, could you also come to the conclusion that there are multiple beings that don't exist in the universe? You might. You might. Which means at this point, we've got two categories of people. We have the theists, which includes like the polytheists and the pagans and the Christians and Islam and I mean, in this category, and then there's atheism. And all we've done right now is said, well, this can't be true. So it's got to be one of these. <laughs> so God's no God, right? Yeah, God's, God's no God. Plural, singular, yeah. no God. I'd take that. If I had a student that was struggling with this, I'd say, that's great, because you're not an atheist anymore. Now we can talk about other stuff. Right? Now we can talk about why we think, well, how does Christianity differ from all these other ones? But that's, that's major progress. A few things, just, just to see how this all works, right? The, um, one of the conversations, if you understand what we mean by God, we mean a, the thing that possesses existence in his essence that's not in the universe and then you ponder Christianity, what you find is something absolutely mind-bending. That the magnet became a nail to come into the room to tell the other nails about life outside of the room. That's who Jesus claims to be. I also heard someone talking about, just on the way out, I could have misheard them, People that say, I'm religious, excuse me, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, there, there, the atheism isn't the problem there. The problem is, why be Catholic? What Jesus claims to be, he claims to be the magnet who became an ale to come into the room to tell the other nails about life outside the room. That's Jesus, yeah? He comes out from outside the world and invites all the other nails to become like him. Okay, let's do the next proof for God's existence. Admittedly, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier. Um, the common sense for the argument of design. Imagine you're on a desert island and you come across the beach and you see the words SOS carved in the sand. What, do you, what would you find more reasonable? The explanation that the ocean happened to fold the sand into an SOS or that someone wrote it? Bottom of page four. Bottom of page four. Or similarly, you're on the same desert island, an island you thought was deserted, and you, come, you walk further in and you see a structure with doors with a door and windows and walls and a roof. What would you assume? That the last tropical storm came in and just blew all these sticks in the thatch in such a design that there was a nice little hut? Or would you assume someone built it? The universe is kind of like that. Um, when you walk into the universe, when you open up your eyes and you start looking around, you see a an, an, an startling amount of order and purpose behind how things are done. That, in a very simple terms, 
points to and indicates that there is a mind behind it. This is probably the, one of the most simple arguments for God's existence. It's one that you can get by standing under the stars on a clear night out in the country. Um, and by the way, it's under violent attack from atheists because they know if they give an inch on this one, like the whole thing unravels. So don't expect this to be an easy, an easy discussion. But the, in terms of being intuitive, it's probably one of the simpler ones to see. Um, I put the argument in a little bit more, well, two things I'll say. If you like science, if you love science, or you know someone that loves science, you, there is a version of this argument, it's a little bit modified, that's about the fine-tuning of the universe. Science, some Christian scientists have discovered, and they argue, that if things at the Big Bang had been a fraction of a degree hotter or cooler, you would not have had the circumstances that would later happen to produce life. If things had been a little bit different at a little bit later, you would never have gotten the gravitational forces or the constants of physics necessary to hold the universe in, in existence. And the numbers are staggering. I will not attempt to explain those to you. I do not have a degree in physics. But if you want to read or hear more about that, you need to go to Father Robert Spitzer's website called the Magis Center. The Magis Center for Faith and Reason. It's, he has videos, he has modules, and he's brilliant. He's a priest with... And he's on EWTN. He, he's, he's something special. Um, listening to him can be like drinking from a fire hydrant sometimes. <laughs> Fair warning, you know. But he, but he cares a lot about getting this message out. And um, if you know someone or if you love science, you should pursue that. You should get to know that. However, you don't need to have a degree in science to make the argument from design. You can also do it from the logical standpoint. And I've included it for you in, in a kind of a more technical uh, version. Let me walk you through it and explain it a little bit. We perceive that the universe is both orderly and not necessary. Premise two, that which is orderly and not necessary is the product of intelligence. Conclusion, there must be an intelligence behind the universe, and that intelligence we call God. Um, let's unpack that a little bit. When we say, we're, we're saying two things about the universe, that it's orderly and not necessary. What do we mean by orderly? Well, it means it's actually, the universe is predictable, that you could run scientific experiments on it. You know, science is a really beautiful thing because the idea is that if you observe systematically in the same time, the same place, you can get some results and you can predict what will happen in the future, right? That's how science works. And the universe is reasonably stable that way. If it weren't stable, you couldn't run the experiments because every day would be something different. But the universe is actually pretty, the, where we live anyway, is really calm. And you can do a lot of science. So it's, it's orderly. But it's also not necessary. This is kind of funny to say, but when you look at the universe, we obviously perceive it as it is. But it could have been a little bit different too. You know, I think the example I gave is like, spiders have eight eyes, right? But they could have had nine. Or they could have had four. Like, why eight? How did that happen? Insects have six legs. Why not seven? Why not eight like arachnids? Or why not ten? Why not have those? You see, so there's these puzzling questions. And you have to, as the scientist, it makes for great fun. Because you get to go out and find this stuff out. You get to do experiments and you have to see it. But what's important about this is you can't figure out the universe just with a pen and paper and logic. You actually have to get your hands dirty and see it. You have to get in there and, and observe it and write down what you're observing and then make predictions and test the prediction and make the hypothesis. This is what we see in the universe. Notice what I've just described is the whole reason why science works in the universe. So if you've got someone who's struggling with God's existence but happens to be very scientific, 
this one might, might be of a help. Because you're basically asking, hey, why is it that you can run experiments in this world? How did that happen? The next premise is that that has to come. Things that are beautiful, not predictable, but stable, come from intellects. They come from minds. So there's got to be a mind behind the universe. And that mind we call God. Same drill. Take a moment, and I want you to, in the box, summarize what you've understood about the argument from design. Put it in your own words. All right, guys, turn to your neighbor. Share what you got. See how he did. I said someone had to be the original architect of the universe. That's a, great, that's a great way of putting it, right? That's a great image, because if you have an architect and you have a building, it takes a mind. Do you guys have anything different? Yeah. That's, that's what the first part of understanding is, right? Is being able to rephrase it. But any questions? If you had to think of an objection, what do you think the objections would be? Think about that. How are you guys doing? It all seems like logic to me. It seems commonsensical. Yeah. When you're looking at like the seed to the flower, there's a pattern behind it. Yeah. And it just. I don't know. It's hard to put into the terms. Yeah. Tell me. Well, this may be challenging. If, it, if something's very intuitive, it's kind of hard to think in the other side. But if you had to imagine objections to this, what do you think people would say? Objection. It, it, it's yeah. so innately. It seems so intuitive. Yeah. All right. Who heard a good one? Who heard a nice? It doesn't have to be rocket science. It doesn't have to be complex. Who heard a good summary of this? Yeah? Um, what did he say? He's saying a structure that can be studied and verified that has someone designed a building. That's why I'm saying a designer and creator. Yeah, a structure that can be studied and verified. and verified seems to have an architect that built it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Anyone have a different way? One of your other analogies, like dominoes. Mm-hmm. You take a dom- you take dominoes, and you've seen where they're all set up right in a row. Yeah. And that one initial movement in there all set off, and they put the, and they all land in that fashion that they were laid out. Yeah. Or you take them and you just throw them up in the air, and they come down and yeah. whatever you have. Yeah. To me, that's the, the, the logic, the reasoning behind that is that. It's that one push that starts it all off. Right. And that was, that's God. That's right. And I really like the way that you phrase that, Ken, with compare that, someone like painstakingly setting up the dominoes, and compare that to just taking the dominoes at my house, at my grandma, <laughs> at my mom's house, where my kids come and they just take the dominoes and go poof. Which one, how many times would you have to take the dominoes and go poof before you actually got a beautiful pattern out of it? Yeah. Or some people have put it this way. This is kind of a funny thought experiment. Imagine you and you're a scientist that never died. And you had monkeys that never died. And you, all, you gave them all typewriters. And they're just banging away at their typewriters for an infinite amount of time. How long would it take till they produced Hamlet? <laughs> and you have something kind of like the universe because the sophistication of, of what's going on in the universe is actually, a good scientist would say it's actually maybe more complex than Hamlet, and that the English teachers and the science teachers can debate that all they want. But the, the, the point is that there's something so powerful there um, to see that. Or if <laughs> I walked into my son's room, because I just use my kids a lot for these examples, and um, the room's messy, how, what's going to get the room cleaner faster? Them just throwing their clothes everywhere and just seeing how many times 
till how, how long it will take them before all those clothes land neatly in their drawers? 20 years. 20 years? <laughs> I, have, I have my doubts on that one. Or just taking the clothes and folding them, right? And there's the idea. Guys, we're already at, at our max of time. If you want to see the objections, and this one's tricky because you really have to be against common sense on this one to come up with the objections, but they exist. They tend to be mathematical in nature. Um, they tend to love chance, to say everything is chance. Um, they exist, and people make the arguments. There are some responses in your packet, and if you want to stay and talk about them afterwards, I'm more than happy to, but I have to respect your time, and we have to call it a night. On that note, all glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ah, one last thing. If you are interested in a book, um, I put books there, but I've also got my friend John Mark. He wrote a book, which this, this, the whole series of classes is built on. It's called Why God, Why Jesus, Why the Catholic Church. There's three chapters on each. At the end of all of them, there's another chapter. There's like a fourth chapter that's just objections. If you want a very good manual on this stuff, that's, I mean, it's hard to say it's easy to read because this stuff is, it pushes you, especially on the, the stuff on God. Um, but this is actually very clearly written when it comes to apologetic material. Thanks for listening to The Movement. To find out more about Holy Family School of Faith's mission to lead others to Jesus through friendship, good conversation, and the rosary, head over to our website at schooloffaith.com.